0: Gift it up. And, and but it gets it harder every day ever it's never done
1: This is weird though. I am really low. It's funny.
2: <laughs> I really it? don't mind changing with you because I actually like sitting low.
1: No, this is fine. <laughs> no, I really think it's appropriate though, right?
2: Well, no, I don't think it's Because I'm like,
1: cool. who am I? I'm like this like nomad interviewer and I'm going to like your like, house.
2: I'm like this nomad composer. I mean, come on.
1: No, no, no. It's fine. We don't need to switch. We don't need to switch. Okay. I'm fine. Everything, everything can, is set we up. We can
2: do this. We can do half and half.
1: Okay, so with the half how do we know we'll hit the halfway point?
2: I think that you you will probably know you have done so many of those. you probably have a feeling,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm.
2: once you feel that we' have reached the half and we are changing about <laughs> to change to something, then we are changing the chairs
1: so do you want to begin with a little biography stuff? How did you end up here in Massachusetts from
2: Beats me yeah. <laughs> Well I was born in a very small place, Kiryat Chaim, Ma'aravit which is the the west one which was a very problematic place when when you know when I was a young girl because it was very divided most of the, the Israelis there were coming from arabic countries and fewer family were ashkenazi so coming from european background and that was not a very peaceful coexistence and then i i'm jumping now about 19 years and i studied music i actually why won't i go to jump only 17 years 14 years i started writing music rock music actually
1: like in a band like
2: yeah well i did things by myself and then i i did have a band Um, and we were called, there was one band which was called Etz, which means tree.
1: How do you spell that?
2: Tree, just the tree.
1: Oh, no, no, no. How do you spell the... Etz,
2: Etz, you can spell it. I mean, it's written in Hebrew, but, um, E-T-Z. Okay. And then, um, we had a bigger band with really excellent people and with some kind of arrangement. Um, and that was called Pandora's Box.
1: What did you play?
2: Well, I wrote those strange songs, and I was the pianist and the singer of the band. Some other people, in the, the bassist also wrote some songs, and the other pianist or keyboardist. The bassist was Arnon Palti, who is a very known jazz player in Israel now.
1: Did you tour throughout Israel?
2: No, we were very young. I mean, I was like 17. I was in high school. We performed, there was a place in in Haifa where all the, we used to call them freaks, they were the kind of the Israeli hippies, which are a little bit different than American hippies because they were very highly intellectual and of exquisite taste. Okay. And they were our fans. (laughs) Anyway, and then the music by itself started getting more and more beatless. And stranger, until people told me, you know, it's not rock music anymore. And together with this, I was starting to listen to all kinds of things. I discovered Weber. And I decided to go to the music academy after a long trip by myself to England, where I hitchhiked all over England. By yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... um, And that was the beginning of my musical life, so to say.
1: What did you have exposure to in Israel as far as new music went?
2: You know, I have to say that um, the class of composers that we had was amazing. A really amazing collection of people and minds and ears. And we did so much together. So from them... It's from a, an older colleague of mine, Zohar Itan, with whom I'm still working together, that I heard about Ligeti, for example. This was the biggest discovery. And he took me to the library and played to me the Requiem. And that was, you know, sev- let's say that was, um, yeah, 79, 80. So Ligeti was really, really important then for all of us. Then Schneebel came to visit. And we all were just floored just listening to his work. It was interesting in Israel because it was actually at that time not so isolated as in other times because we had a woman that everybody considered crazy. And I don't exactly remember. Her first name was Robin. She was um, from Canada, I think, or from the United States. And she worked in the radio, in the Israeli radio. And she was the curator of a monthly concert for new music. Music in a New Dimension.
1: Was the name of the...
2: Series. Yeah. And we heard music by Lachenmann. We heard music um, by uh, Kagel. Yeah, it was really interesting because there was a lot of openness and curiosity and she brought a lot of wind from outside.
1: Is it like that now, though? I mean, is it more...
2: Well, now, you know, I'm not there, so I cannot really observe the small fluctuations, but I do know that in some ways it has been a very closed scene. And I understand that right now I also experience it because I go every year to teach a course there, a course where we always involve two to four Israeli composers. That's the aim of the course, you know. What I'm noticing is that there are now a few groups, like three or four groups, which play new music, which is current. There is Ensemble Meitar, there is the Ensemble of the 20th Century Music, and above all, there is Nickel Ensemble.
1: Wait, but they're not Israeli?
2: Well, they are considered Israeli. Their director, Yaron Deutsch, is Israeli, and they are based in Israel. I did not know that. Yeah, and Yaron is extremely active. Once a year there is a festival in Israel, Tzlil Me'ud Khan, which Yaron is the artistic um, director of, and it's connected to the course that we are teaching. It's the same kind of... um, We are the course of that festival, and students that are working in the course are performed during that festival. So I hear these festivals once a year, and it really is an, an interesting festival. But to tell you that all the young composers in Israel are coming to hear it, that would be a lie. Yes, yeah,
1: that's what I mean. I meant, I, I meant more the mentality of the people writing music.
2: Yeah, there are. it's varied. There are two centers or in Israel. Well, in Israel, there are three big cities, so Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Haifa. Each of these cities has a music academy. And each of these music academies has a very strong character. And I would say that Jerusalem is the biggest, the most popular, and the most enclosed. Tel Aviv is the open, very, very open, but it's kind of falling apart because there is very little support for composition within the the school. And Haifa is thriving, and it's a very nice and fresh new force, but it is new, you know. And there is a lot of openness there, I believe. So there are those three different institutions, and each of them is a different approach, something like that, if you think about the young people who write music.
1: Okay. So anyway, you go hitchhiking to the UK. Oh, right. Yeah. My biography.
2: And, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, I studied in Israel with Abel Ehrlich, who was an amazing human being, amazing composer, and am- amazing teacher. A very crazy person that we all admired with the most absurd sense of humor you can imagine. After, I don't know, five, six years there, I got a DAAD to go to study with Schnebel. So
1: that's how you got to Germany. Dea Ade Schnabel.
2: Exactly. That's how it started. Uh, I was sure that later I will come back and live in Israel and and be in Israel. But
1: But that ended up not happening. Didn't
2: pan up quite like this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You get the Dea Ade. You go to, where where is Schnabel at that time? Berlin. Okay. So you're living in Berlin.
2: I live in Berlin in its golden days when the, the wall was still on. 83 to 85. And I get to experience this island mentality, which was really magical. This is amazing thing to to be able to to experience. And then I went to the U.S. My husband at the time was a cellist. He was accepted to Bloomington School of Music. In In, Indiana? In Indiana. I didn't know
1: you (laughs) went there.
2: I studied with John Eaton as a non-degree student. No way. Really? Yeah. Him?
1: <laughs> like the mic, like the original microtonal guy. Yeah. You know, he's still in New York, I think.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. I, I had yeah. A, a Facebook connection with him. Oh, my God. He was wonderful at that time, really.
1: But yeah. let's, go back to, let's go back to Berlin for those. So you're in Berlin for two years. And a half. Two and a half years studying with Schnabel what ha- like, what? like What's that environment like? What are you exposed to? What does it do to your head? What does it do to your music?
2: It's interesting because it is not like I experienced a revolution. I think that somehow in Israel already, I was starting to do things that, you know, people said, people who came from the outside said, how can you do that if you have only been here? Something like that. But, you know... I was in the same class, for example, as Gian Mario Boyo, who is now a very active musicologist in Italy. And he said to me one day, you mean to tell me that you don't know the music of Chelsea? And I said, Chelsea? No, I'm sorry. I have never heard that name. So he appeared with the CD. And this CD really changed my life, for example.
1: What was the CD? What music did you hear of his?
2: Anahit was the first piece. Okay. And it was just, you know, it was, it was not about it being new. It was rather actually being old. <laughs> it's archaic and like something which is subconscious, familiar to me, actually, subconsciously. So... That was one thing that happened there. There was a lot of improvisation going on. I was in the class, or I was in the same environment. We were at the same time with uh, Isabel Mundry, Hans Peter keyboards, and Orm Finandel. That's quite the I, I class. Was,
0: you know,
2: I was I was older than them. I was actually not accepted to that class. I came to Berlin. I had the DAAD to study with Schnabel. I was not supposed to do the Aufnahmeprüfung. But nobody told me, so I did them. And all those people got into the class and I was rejected.
1: So how did you end up getting into, you just didn't take the class
2: then? So I, you know, but I was not supposed to even do the, 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 because I was actually studying with Dieter. So it was just a kind of a difficult thing to, to get through, which was very good. But um, they apologized later,
1: <laughs> Okay. <they laughs> to said some that. extent. <laughs> what do you mean? How did they apologize later?
2: <laughs> to some extent. Uh, one of, I don't want to mention names, but one of the teachers, um, probably one of the most active of them, came to a concert because I succeeded to get two pieces into a student concert in the Hadeka. In those days, it was called Hadeka.
1: Yeah, now it's the yeah, Udeka. 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 Yeah.
2: And he came to that concert where I had uh, this one piece. And after the piece, he came to me and he said, "This was an excellent piece." They saw that as an, an apology <laughs> because he didn't have to come. So, the there's
1: been, so when you're in Berlin, there's really no mental change that happens to being oh. exposed on that island, or
2: a huge mental change. Oh, okay, then what's the, but, describe
1: but, describe it.
2: It's it's hard to, to explain. I mean, when I said there were no revolutions, I meant actually musically. It was not like I suddenly discovered the world because as I told you, I had hints of it and I was really hungry. So even in Israel, I was already very open even to the small voices that I could have heard. But... And
1: you were lucky enough to have that radio station series. Exactly. Too. Yeah. Okay. Very
2: lucky. Yeah. And to have my colleagues who were all... I mean, we used to teach, do those courses that, you know, every time one of us would teach the others something. And um, we did it on our free will. There was no credit that was attached to this. It was just a very extraordinary group of people that I was really, really lucky to be a part of. In Berlin, then, in that sense, it was a continuation. Or, you know, you come with a hunger, but the hunger is already to something that you knew existed. But to get out of Israel and to be in a a different place, and especially this is Germany, it was very, very complex. And it was, and Berlin was at the time, you know, it was like a huge echo chamber because there was, when I said magical, what I meant is that it was a city that had human nerves (laughs) all over it. And if you, touched a node, there was repercussions and echoes all over. I mean, I came there, I had no place to stay, but we met by chance somebody who said, oh, you can stay in my house, I'm gone for the next two months, and it would be great if you stayed. That house was in Kreuzberg, and it was vis-a-vis a besetzte house, you know, where people, which was so amazing to, to be, you know. When we were done with that, we already had the next apartment lined up. And by the time that school started, we had friends. Everything was just happening so fast, so by itself. And you got to the people who were more or less looking for the same thing like you did very easily in that climate of this closed city.
1: Because it was just so, because it was so closed. closed. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, because of that
1: eventually that was going to happen no matter what. It was, do you know what I mean when I say that? Yeah. It's inevitable that that something, a city that that closed, everybody's going to, who's an artist is going to get to know one another. Exactly. Yeah.
2: But it was just like, you know, like those veins that are carrying those messages or whatever they are, were very clean and open and everything just connected very neatly.
1: But was it also aesthetically closed? Okay, it's good that things are bouncing around as a small network, but then there's also the argument that if it's open, then more things more different types of things can come in.
2: you know i I don't know. I think that Berlin had always have something idiosyncratic, which is and and if you think about New York, that is very, very similar, New York is in some way even more closed. To some extent. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't, uh, that's from my perspective then, now. But you know, back then it was just, I can't explain that to you. You come from Israel and the houses in Israel, for example, are quite ugly. They are always gray. If you go to Tel Aviv, it's really the most beautiful, ugly city in the world. The
1: most beautiful, ugly city in the world.
2: Yeah. There is no attention to outside Face of things, it's just the opposite. There is some pride in oh, we are straight as it as it is. We are not trying to be dishonest and beautify it. You know that's yeah. very Israeli, it's connecting some kind of honesty with showing things as they are or worse than they, they are. And um, then you come to to this city, and I think the most amazing thing, and I am still. I'm still amazed by it, also in my house now, is the change in the light. Because light in Israel is something you do not look for. It's everywhere. And it's so exposing. It's white. And it's so exposing that you see that everything is dusty and that you see the grayness and that you see that the graffiti is old. (laughs) Even the graffiti is not fresh, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And then you come to Berlin and it's this north city and light is very precious. And you know and you have those long periods of time where you can see I remember my first husband used to go on the on the roof and was looking and said, Chaya, in about an hour and a half we'll have some sun."
1: Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 unbearable during the winter sometimes.
2: But when the sun comes, it is amazing because the sun has color; it has a quality of a mystery or something, and it's very precious, you know, even in the springtime. And then, you know, in Israel, you don't have so much this seasonal thing that the the, the leaves are falling and then that you get the new leaves. For me, this was such an amazing thing. That these were this was the the real revolution. I lived in a house then. It was one of those Grundstück houses, you know? Yeah. It was in a colony. And um, to see the fruits and to see how things are, just this natural cycle, that was something that was very different. It was different, but it was very close to me because my parents came from there, you know, not from Berlin, but from Poland or Russia. So I have something European. So it was a very strange... Sing, but very beautiful, yeah.
1: And then after that, you go to.
2: And then I go to to Bloomington, and I live in a trailer because in Bloomington you can live in a trailer as a student. They oh. have those two.
1: Did you? Was that a choice? Mm-hmm.
2: It's because it was cheap. It okay. Was very very cheap. So, you had these small trailers, and it was so hot in the summer. Why did you decide to go to Bloomington? Oh, no, because your,
1: your husband at the time got a job, you said. No, right. he, oh. he
2: got a, to study with one of the students of Starker, so he wanted to go. He was a cellist.
1: Okay, and then you, you went with. The, were you there studying, or were you just living there?
2: I was going just to be living there, but then I saw John Eaton. I heard his music. I thought, oh, I should just go and take lessons, and he was nice enough to, to accept me. And we worked very well together.
1: What did you learn from him? He's such a character.
2: I, I can't tell you something specific, but I think he was a good guidance for that time. And above all, he was a really excellent human being. Right? How long were you there for? Oh, just half of a year. Half okay, a year. that's not bad. No, all no, right. no. And then, I, then we went to Bard College.
1: In New York? Mm-hmm.
2: I d I didn't know I I didn't know you did so much traveling. In my
1: head you were just is in my head you were obviously Israel and then uh Europe for a long time. But you spent a lot of time in the States. many
2: different places in the States. Okay.
1: All right. So you're so then you go to New York and then I'm sorry I'm going so slow through your biography, but I don't know. <laughs> okay. Like you've been Fine. through all these places, then let's okay. you know, let's talk about Fine. it. So Now you're in the. Now you're in Bard College. Are you living around that area? You're
0: well. Bard
2: College had this amazing. What happened was that we had to leave Bloomington because because of personal reasons, um, not exactly of mine, but I needed then to find a place in America so that we don't have to go to Israel, and I found Bard College, which was had a graduate. Program,
1: you really didn't want to go back, but you just you didn't want to go back to Israel. At that time, we yeah, needed okay.
2: to extend, yeah, yeah, being outside of Israel. So in Bard College, you have this program where you can go every summer, live there for two months, and it's a mixed company of playwrights, movie makers, painters, sculptors, and and composers and writers and um, poets, and this is a kind of a special master program, it's fantastic, and you do it for two or three summers, depending, and that's what I did, and it gives you the possibility to stay then for the whole year in America, which we did, and we lived in Boston, actually, in Jamaica Plain. Yeah, that was actually an important thing, being being there, and hearing the presentations of all the poets, of all the sculptures.
1: What's going on in your music at this point?
2: Oh, I was then studying with two people, Elia Dan and John Tower. John Tower? Mm-hmm. She's on any, every list of my teachers.
1: John Eaton, John Tower. These are such like opposites. Almost. Well,
2: D- Dieter Schnebel. <laughs> yeah, Dieter Schnebel. Okay.
1: Well, lots of different types of
2: teachers. Brian Ferniehau and Roger Reynolds. Yeah, that's or, right. Yeah, you studied with him it's, too. It's yeah. very different. Um, it's a very varied group. And the the thing then was that John Tower really wanted me to write something peachy, which I was not doing at the time. So there was a, lo- a, little, a little war going on where I said, okay, I will do it. You gave in? I gave in for once, and I wrote a piece that was really pitch and rhythm, basically. This piece piece was played then in a concert of this um, Meridian String Quartet at Carnegie Hall, Recital Hall, when I, when I was very young. And once I heard it, I decided that I never want to do anything like that.
1: Why did you give in in, uh, in the first place? When I say give in, why did, you, did you feel like you had to listen to her? I mean, what's the...
2: Yeah, she's very persuasive. She's quite a cool person. And um, I like challenges. And if somebody says to me, you are extremely talented for colors, which was everything that, you know, I've heard it from, I was the the color witch, you know, somebody the who... The color witch? Yes. Is, that, was that
1: they called you in the band?
2: No, <laughs> they didn't. But that was the kind of the essence of the... The perception of what I was in Israel. So everybody, you know, knew that I have really good ears and so, but they used to say, yeah, structure, I don't know, but she's amazing how she can hear those colors. And, and I think I got very tired of it. And I said to myself, okay, so let's, let's look at it eye to eye and I'm going to, I think that it's very good, actually, sometimes, too. It's not giving in. It's exactly the opposite. It's, okay, I'm not going to compose where I'm most comfortable. Let's see if I can do my thing, even if I don't get the means to do it. But I was not happy with the result. I did feel like it was a betrayal. That is the full truth.
1: What What was the argument you had with... uh... Joan Tower afterwards you're like I I tried it I'm not doing that again or no
2: no that came later when I heard it the piece performed really really well and it was a big success and everybody came to to congratulate me and to say how amazing it was and I just felt like can I just go and throw myself on the next bridge yeah okay (laughs) wow
1: so that was the direction you went in just for a brief one piece. One piece. Is there still a recording of it, or no? You won't have it performed. Yeah, yeah, no,
2: the, no. I want. I, I all basically all the pieces until I was thirty or twenty-nine are not performed. I now release uh, released one piece, which is all pitch and rhythm actually almost that it's. But I love it. It was when I was twenty-three years old. I wrote it. I think that piece is going to be recorded for violin solo. It's coming up in in a few months.
1: How old were you when you wrote this one, the String Quartet?
2: The String Quartet, this must, I was probably, um, this is 86, probably, so I'm uh, 28, 29, because I'm December, so...
1: So you do that, you don't like it, then you go back to what... Well, I mean, not maybe go then back... Then I continue. Yeah, you, then can, I continue. You, you continued as if it didn't happen.
2: Look, you never can continue as if anything didn't happen. You learn from everything. You just learn from everything. So whatever you... You just go forward with what you got. You always get something. If, even if the something is some clarity that you don't want to do something in a certain way you've gained a lot from that. Yeah. So it's not like it has never happened. It's like a lot has happened.
1: It just, it just maybe reaffirmed what you were doing before, maybe even more. Like, actually, this is, I am the color witch at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but, uh, you know, I'm sure that making clear to everybody and for first and foremost to myself that, that I, can, I can do it in pitch and structure only that that was a strengthening experience in some way. And then I'm applying and getting accepted to UCSD. Okay. And then you
1: got in and you went to UCSD and then Fernie Howe was there. At he the time. came the
2: same year that I did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I studied with him actually as a student, individual student, only two months. Yeah, because in UCSD they have we have the system that the incoming students study with all the faculty members and then they choose and the faculty member choose. And that's how the studios are decided upon. And then if you choose a teacher, usually you stay with them for the whole time. And I chose to to work with Roger Reynolds.
1: What was the atmosphere of that school like at the time?
2: Ah, it was amazing.
1: It's a very, Yeah, it's a very well-known school for new music and new music performance. Yeah. And it also has a unique history and a way of thinking about things that I think is indicative of a certain time period, if that makes sense. I don't know. In my head, I think of it as like the heyday of UCSD. Do you know what that means? Like the Yeah, yeah. Maybe like the, maybe but, like the but, golden period where it was at its height. What was it like at that time? What was the
0: atmosphere well, like? You know,
2: some people would claim that the heyday were before, when Paulino Oliveros was there when it was much more of a 60 atmosphere, because actually I was there in the time of the transition, and there was a lot, was a big war going on between the Americanists to, to the Europeanists, you know, because Brian just came. Brian is a person who is really fighting for quality, and quality is not exactly a parameter that was so present In the 60s, it was not about quality. It was much more about happening, openness. Let it happen, you know. And Roger actually was then becoming a very, very important person in the school. He has always been, but, you know, and Roger is also a person who promotes a very discerning and very aware approach to composition that has to do with pursuing quality, you know. So I don't know if these were the heydays. These were very intense days at, at UCSD.
1: Who won? I guess I know the answer. I mean, the the Roger Reynolds, for anyhow, people won,
2: right? Yes, they did. Yeah, yeah. It was a kind of a natural course that the things have taken. You couldn't stay in that place of before forever so and now i think they are again in a different place so things change that's part of a vitality the, the vitality of a place what place do you think they're in now i don't know much oh, about it yeah. i know you know from far away but you know they've gone through a lot of transitions philip manori has left i don't think things have stabilized yet yeah
1: but you also ended up Teaching there, right? Am I Yeah, I'm I, very right? attached
2: to that school. Yeah.
1: So so after you graduate do you go right from teaching?
2: Not at all. No. Okay. First of all, they have a, a rule against hiring their own, which is very, very different than what happens in Germany, for example. Yeah. And I like that rule. So you cannot just come from the school and be chosen to teach? No, after UCSD, I was already with Stephen Takasugi. My husband, the present, and we together decided that we wanted to go to Japan. He is of Japanese origin and he spoke the language to some extent. He was raised by his Japanese gr- grandmother.
1: But you didn't speak Japanese at all?
2: After a year, I spoke really not badly. And after two years, I spoke better than Stephen. I'm very proud to say. Really? <laughs> because I really st- I worked really hard. But why, why,
1: why did you make that, or why did you make that decision together?
2: Oh, uh, to go to Japan. Yeah. Well, I had a connection to Japan since you know my since my teenage. I I was just, um, for example, when um, Yoko Ono, the father of the Buto dance, came to Israel. This was a formative experience for me. There was another dancer, Keita Takei, who was based in New York who blew my mind. The, all these people came through Israel, and I have i was so orthodox about waiting for their performances. And and then I also heard Gagaku music, which sounded to me like something that I always knew. It like, sounded like, oh, so that's what I always wanted to hear, or to write, or to experience. Oh, really? One of those? One of those, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was very clear to me that I have to experience this country and we lived there for two and a half years too
1: so much bouncing around from place to place yeah what were you doing there what i mean once you make the decision okay you can decide to go to a place but did you have anything lined up did you just arrive and you're like here well, i am Well, we
2: were smart we went to the japanese embassy and we looked every embassy has a file of grants that you can get and there was this grant asahi Shimbun grant which looked to me absurd because it was too good to sound, to be true. And I said to Stephen, that's the one I want. And we looked at <laughs> the it The one together. too good to be true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we looked at it together. And uh, Stephen is very smart and he said, you know, they write here that they want to give it to an artist, but they never did. Because if you look at all the people that have gotten it, never have they given it to an artist. And that's the point that we made in the application, and they gave it to, to me. Okay, so,
1: and it lasted for two and a half years.
2: It lasted for a very good year that had left something. That's how I lived in Japan, and Stephen also got the Japan Foundation grant, so we were set for two years. Why are you moving around so much? I'm curious. You and think
1: that's just a natural, natural thing?
2: You know, I think it is a characteristic It's temperamental, but it's also characteristic when you are born in a very small city and you know that your parents have gone through the most horrible thing that you can imagine. You can't just stay there like a small white plant. You have to prove that you can also deal with the world and take it on.
1: Oh, really? You think it's like it comes from that, like mm-hmm. your, your parents went through such horrors that you also have to prove that you're tough somehow and you can move y- that around? You
2: and- can, that you can be in the world, that you can engage and that you can figure out the world to some extent in your way so that you don't always stay this, oh, yeah, yeah, I have this small life, but my parents, they have gone through the most horrible thing that you can imagine. How can I even, you know, validate my existence?
1: Are you proving that to yourself? Are you, are you proving it to them at the same time? It's not about
2: proving. It's not about proving. It's almost about, you know, like the salmons that they swim against the stream. (laughs) It's, it's not about proving. It's something that you need to do as a part of your growth in order to to exist (laughs) because you can't exist if you don't give yourself that kind of um friction with the world. That was that was for me how okay. it was. So just yeah.
1: and just constantly putting yourself in different countries and different situations and living in a trailer and then going to Japan and writing music with pitches in it. It is all it's all part it's all part of that uphill thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well I wanna I have a million questions now, but I I want to finish your biography first. So <laughs> it's a just lo- get through this it is
2: <laughs> this is becoming a book.
1: You, well, let, let it be a book. This is this is interesting. Yeah, you, know, I, I, you know, I normally I normally talk to people who haven't you know lived so long. You know, why, that sounds terrible, but it's true, right? It does it's sound. Ash, it's you know, it's it's people who are it's people who are my age who don't, yeah, who, right, who, who right. have who have opinions, but you know, the biography lasts ten minutes for a reason, right? <laughs> so you're in. You're in Japan. You go, you do that for two years. You're not studying with anybody. You're just making stuff. No, no. By that time, I'm
2: already, you know, I'm 35 or so, right? So I'm independent.
1: You have commissions and stuff from ensembles. What's career career rise? So
2: I didn't have commissions until the age of 38. Not even one. I would just, I had only scholarships and I was very good at getting scholarships. I had no idea how to get commissions. I have just didn't know how to start with this even.
1: But were people, okay, whether or not you were getting paid, were people asking you to oh, write yeah, music yeah. for that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I always okay. had people Th- that's to... That's what write. I meant by commission, kind of. Uh, ah, yeah, okay. Yeah
2: yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I always, there was not, there is only one piece that was not played from that time. You okay. Know. So, no, I had performance by really good uh, performers. Yeah. Performances. Yeah. Hmm. Was very lucky that way.
1: Okay. You're in Japan just because you want to be there, and then you're also writing for, at this point, I'm assuming, mostly European ensembles.
2: Well, I when I was in Japan, I worked with Mayumi Miyata, the show player. Okay. And I actually wrote a, a, a trio, the Kreuzung, which is written for Sh- U, which the U is the um, alto version of the show, which is like the soprano version, so... It's a bigger mouth organ. So I wrote a piece for the U, for alt saxophone, and for double bass. And that that is what I did when I was there. And then the second year, I actually wrote that piece for a gagaku orchestra that was never played. Because the gagaku orchestra in Japan that was supposed to play it then looked at it and saw that it was a little bit too much out of the gagaku.
1: At Japan, where you go?
2: After Japan, I'm getting pregnant in Japan. I give birth to my son in Israel. And already when we are in Japan, I know that I got the next scholarship, which is to the Academy Schloss Solitude in mm. Germany, which was a very, very lucky thing for the whole family. So with my son about one month old, we moved to the Schloss.
1: You're, so you're, you're living in a castle?
2: We are living in a castle. Yeah. And that is when I get my first paid commission, which was the piece of a team.
1: I'm not familiar with that. What's the, what, what's the orchestration It's a nonet, yeah.
2: a mixed nonet. It was written for Ensemble recherche, And the commission came from Steirische Herbst, Music Protocol in Steirische Sheherbst. Christian Scheib was the curator at the time. And it was a very good festival. And it was played there the same year with um, Haas in vain, so those pieces were really, and I think they really represented very different angles of what was going on. But they were played at the same festival.
1: Okay, and this is uh, ninety six. Ninety six. How yeah. long you how long you at solitude for?
2: And just one year, a whole year. But then already in solitude, I get the, the phone call from Rand Steiger from UCSD who tells me that I'm one of the finalists for a position, for which I don't even remember applying, actually, I don't know, I think the students that were there recommended that I would be asked. Yeah, and I had to go and do it, do the interview and do the, and turned out I got the position. And since that was the only way to continue and survive, and now, and now
1: you have a kid who you have to support, which is
2: yeah, that was a huge relief. Stress and stressful, yeah. Yeah, it was a huge relief to to get that. I mean, it was really months of. I just remember this happiness of going to an office and thinking, "Wow, this is my office. This is my mm-hmm. office. I'm teaching here."
1: But is it and the first time? Do you think that you have the possibility of not having to swim upstream for a while, right? Yeah, Because because academic positions are... Yeah, it's the first time. It yeah, was a it's, huge... They're, they're safe and... Yeah. yeah.
2: It, I, I mean, I still remember very distinctly this moment uh, of... I, I learned how to drive when I came back. Yeah. So this moment of me driving my car, my son is in the back because I'm picking him up from the daycare to go home, and I'm saying to myself... I'm a woman who has a son. She's driving her car back from her job to home. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just thinking about the meaning of this. You're
1: living the dream. You're living the American dream, aren't you? <laughs> Did you have a house with like a white picket fence and.
2: Not white picket fence, but it was a very lovely house with a courtyard. It's the first time with stability. I mean, yes. It was not only being at UCSD. It's having a son was a huge change. Yeah.
1: When you have the kid, are you like, okay, now it's time for me to stop. Like the potential of you of living in a trailer in Indiana is gone now, right?
2: It's strange. Yeah. The whole orientation has changed, but it is really connected to some kind of, um, of peace that comes with having a child. I think that even for example, a part of a kind of an existential loneliness that you have, you get rid of it for the first years when you have a child. It just disappears because there is a piece of you in the world which is a different person. And it's amazing. It's just, I think that it's a very, one of the strongest experiences in life.
1: Again, what does this do to your thought process? How is this affecting your music? You're finally at a place where you are you don't have to you know worry about certain things, and at the same time have to worry a lot about other things.
2: Yeah, you know, you're one, starting
1: to teach for the first time. Yeah, yeah.
2: One important com- composer, whom I'm not going to to name, has, has told me once, "Never had, never have kids because when." women composers have kids, regardless of how talented and fearless they are, they all start writing lullabies. But for me, it was exactly the opposite. I mean, actually, what happened then is that I really get the biggest opportunity so far to write an opera. And then the first two years at UCSD, actually, I work on Pneema, my first opera. And this is like, pulling together everything that I learned so far, and really going on a limb, sending it to a different dimension in terms of the length of the world, and let's say the mental place that I allow it to occupy. So it's almost as if all this swimming against, all this salmon <laughs> swimming against, it all focused now only in my work. That's what happened. Once okay, so I- it no
1: longer becomes environmental. It becomes it's, it's, purely aesthetic at this point.
2: It's For me, it's never purely aesthetic because my work is not aesthetic. It's my life in my work. There are the life in the real work, real world and there is the life in the work. And the life in the work coalesces to inhabit all this energy. And I think that that's when pneuma comes and Shuhai, Shuhai practices javelin which is one of my first pieces at that time, and then Pnima, the miniatures. This is the period where all of this comes together. It's a very meaningful time, actually, creatively, and actually the time where I took the most risks in some way. It's almost like there is one amount of advent- adventure, adventure or, or uh, risk-taking. And if it's not in, in life, it's going to go to the music purely. It's it's a kind of a funny thing. It has
1: to go somewhere. Yeah. What were those risks that you were taking at that time?
2: Well, let me go back for a moment. I remember your question about all this traveling and that I told you, that kind of dealing with the world, in, in kind of taking risks in that sense, was not in order to prove a point but I didn't exactly explain what was it. And I can say that it was, I said that it was like a natural need or it was essential, right? Just like with the fish that are going upstream. But that need was actually through those experiences to peel away layers until you get to the basic strengths that you have. Because you had to meet that strength, so to feel like nobody, even your own parents or nobody with their life yeah can can push you over in some way or or can in in their existence can make your existence small, because you have that center of gravity or you have that base that cannot be put into doubt because it went through so many things that it has accumulated the self-certainty of its existence. And that is, in a way, a process that each one of my pieces is doing. So if I think about pneuma, that was the first time, maybe, that one of my pieces really went through that kind of exploration in such a huge dimension, over 75 minutes, starting with all those kind of fragmentary elements that are there. But by the time you get to the end of the opera, you really understand their real nature and why they are there to begin with. And you actually learn to trust them as, as the piece goes on, because all of the external layers are peeled away one by one, what you are left with is either the, the most internal uh, quality or only the peels of what was the most external cover of that quality. Okay. So, yeah.
1: would you, is, so it's almost that's almost a very clear narrative in a way.
2: I think that in Pnima, if you look. From this musical, it's not—it's—it's it's a musical strategy or way of work. Strategy is too is too business-like, but um, it is more, almost like that's the way that it gets to to that water <laughs> by, by peeling away. I think it really does work like that in Kneema.
1: Were you aware of that? Is, is this something that you were just intuitively doing at the time, intuitively not, re- doing. not realizing that it was actually kind of mirroring your life? Experience you know, this To that is, point, or is, it just, is this just a retrospect? Oh, of course, I stopped doing that, and then it, like the process of what that was all of a sudden gets transferred into this opera.
2: Look, this is the reading I'm giving you today. If you were to meet me two weeks from now, I would have said probably something very different. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, people would understand connect,
2: that. Yeah? So it is one way of looking at it, and um, it is definitely there. To tell you that this is the whole story or that this is the, the major reading of the thing, I would not pretend to say that. It is, this is how I see it today, from where I stand. and yeah.
1: This piece is the first piece that starts doing that kind of peeling away?
2: Well, I don't know if it's the first piece, but it's, let's say that it's doing it in a dimension that it is, that I've not done it before. I'm allowed to bring five soloists, instrumental soloists, who are all friends that I've worked with and that are very inspiring for me. You know, Mary Oliver, who used to improvise in San Diego, she basically gave me the first strong contact to improvisation. And then, um, Anthony Baer, the clarinetist, Frank Cox, who was with me in the class as a composer, David Shively, who worked with me hours on the uh, singing, so and on the percussions. So, um, and, and then two other people who came from the outside Rico Gubler, who became then a collaborator, and Andreas Eberle, who was the trombonist. Thromb- but the four people that I mentioned first. They were real inspiration because I knew their way of playing, so I have that element and then I am allowed to bring Ute Wassermann, with whom I worked on Shuhai and um and I'm allowed to bring Philippe Larsen from San Diego all these people all this huge field where I am allowed to paint. This is like somebody is giving me wings and then a whole string orchestra. And live electronics. So it was just like somebody saying, okay, you can dream now. We will catch you wherever you will fall. We can catch you. Just go and dream. Do your thing.
1: Those opportunities are so rare.
2: It is so rare. It is so very rare.
1: Was this the first time in your career that you were like, oh my God, this is perfect. This is everything that I want. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I also actually contributed to it because I was lucky enough to receive, Hellman family had this grant at UCSD, which was a lot of money. This is what enabled me to bring all those people from UCSD to Germany.
1: All right. All right.
2: But they really worked with me, the Biennale, to make it possible. Okay.